Michael, one of the things that I did for 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 this book was look at um, about 40 years of academic research on regret. And what that tells us pretty clearly is that everybody has regrets. Uh, it's part of the human condition. Our cognitive machinery is programmed for regret. And so this, I, this idea that's out there of no regrets as a life philosophy is complete crap. I've been thinking about the power of regret ever since my Wavemaker conversation in 2015 with the legendary psychoanalyst, Dr. Irvin Yalom. He told me he finds the concept of regrets empowering when used as a way to help shape your future. I have never had a patient come to see me and have no regrets, but I work with regrets quite a bit. And they they look at what they've regretted in their life and what they haven't done in their life. And that's one thing, to look at regrets from the past. But then you, you have a moment where you can begin to say to them, if we were to meet one year from now, how could you possibly have lived a regret-free life during that time? And that's where the therapeutic crunch comes in. What could you do differently so that you wouldn't constantly be building up regrets which you use to judge yourself adversely? Daniel Pink picks up where Dr. Yalom left off. We collected over 16,000, close to 17,000 regrets now from people in 105 countries. It's extraordinary. Just an, we have this incredible database of regrets from around the world. What Daniel Pink has done is to identify four core regrets that are shared by people no matter where they live. And what's interesting about these four core regrets is that they operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That is, if we understand what people regret the most, we understand what they value the most. And so this emotion of regret actually ends up being a pathway to understanding what makes life worth living. Using regrets to understand what makes our lives worth living. What a great way to usher in the new year on Wavemaker Conversations with our guest, Daniel Pink. I have to say, I'm looking back at your bookshelves because, you know, I interview a lot of authors and it's like, man, I would love a tour of your bookshelves. But is it is there one book in there that you would pick out one of the most influential books that you have read in your life that has just had an impact on you that you would want to share with people? Well, there might be one. It's actually I think I actually was looking at it the other day. Uh, so it's on my desk somewhere, which is this book right here, uh, Working by Studs Terkel, uh, which came out in 1974 and is a chronicle of what people's lives are like at work. Studs Terkel, the great radio journalist from Chicago, interviewed people from all different kinds of workplaces. And I, I read that. I actually read it when I was a kid um, and loved it and have loved it ever since. Huh. And so you've gone back and reread that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and even I was I happened to have it on my desk because I was trying to I was arguing with somebody about something and I had to quote a line from the book here, actually from literally from the first page of the text. I so, see. I'm I'm sorry to get you off track, but you gotta read the line to me. You gotta tell me the content. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, we were talking about how we were having this conversation about whether, you know, it's when we think about our work, whether it's better just to say, let's just do your work. And don't think about work as a source of satisfaction. It just, it's a way to you know, find satisfaction in other elements of your life and that this constant search for work that is significant and purposeful is in some ways a fool's errand because that's not the domain of life where we should seek those sorts of things. And I disagreed with that. And you know, here's Studs Terkel who, who interviewed 
people doing all kinds of different jobs. So if you look at even in this index here, you know, he like, you know, a, a jockey, a baseball player, a gas meter reader, a supermarket box boy, a supermarket checker, a sky cap. Even some of these names are old fashioned, a labor organizer, a bank teller, you know, a bookbinder, a piano tuner. Um, and and he's saying Stud Circle says in the very top of this book, literally the first page of the introduction um, about work, he says, um, um it is about a search to for daily meaning as well as daily bread for recognition as well as cash for astonishment rather than torpor so even he 40 years ago was talking about these things look this is the perfect segue into your new book which is the power of regret how and i love the subtitle how looking backward moves us forward. I really want to speak to you before New Year's. This is the Wave Maker Conversations New Year's episode uh, because this is a period where we look backwards, hopefully, to then look forwards and 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 uh, create the conditions for a better new year. Yeah. And this this idea of finding daily meaning in work and maybe yeah. regretting the idea that, you know, maybe I didn't find enough meaning in my work this year. Maybe next year I will. But let me start with, uh, first of all, thank you for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations two months before the release of your book. I've pre-ordered it and hey, I, I can't wait to I can't wait to read it. So, uh, you know, I, I, I played a clip for you of, of Dr. Irvin Yalom, another great yeah. author. He's one of those books that I pull out of my shelf a lot. And, and as a therapist, and he and I calculated it together in our conversation, he's done roughly 50,000 hours of therapy with patients. Oh my gosh. He's in his late 80s now. And, if, and, and he That's said, crazy. and you heard, you heard him say this, he said he, he, he likes the value, the therapeutic value of exploring regrets. You talk about the value of regret. You say regret has been given a bad name. And I think your framing is critical because you view regret as uh, something that has the potential to transform one's present and future in a very positive way. Describe to me the value of regret. I have never had a patient come to see me and have no regrets, but I work with regrets quite a bit. And they, they look at what they've regretted in their life and what they haven't done in their life. And that's one thing to look at regrets from the past. But then you, you have a moment where you can begin to say to them, if we were to meet one year from now, how could you possibly have lived a regret-free life during that time? And that's where the therapeutic crunch comes in. What could you do differently so that you wouldn't constantly be building up regrets which you use to judge yourself adversely? So I, I like to work with that concept. It's awfully important for an awful lot of people. I go to you now, Daniel Pink, who have taken, who have, you've taken this concept, you've gone global with it. Tell us about the power of regret and what you've learned. Well, so uh, Michael, one of the things that I did for, for, for this book was look at um, about 40 years of academic research on regret, which is, which is pretty interesting. And what that tells us pretty clearly is that everybody has regrets. Uh, it's part of the human condition. Our cognitive machinery is programmed for regret. And so this I, this idea that's out there of no regrets as a life philosophy is complete crap. Uh, it's it's wrong. I mean, it's wrong. It's wrong in the sense that it's it's bad advice. It's also wrong in the sense that it's not accurate. 
Uh, the only people without regrets are five-year-olds, people with brain damage and sociopaths. The rest of us have regrets. They make us human. And the other thing that this research tells us is that regret makes us better, that if we deal with them properly as, 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 as he, this, you know, he's saying from 50,000 years of 50, 50,000 hours of, of, um, he's not that old, 50,000 hours of, of, uh, of therapy that, that they can actually make us better. And there's a lot of evidence showing it can help improve our decision-making. It can deepen our sense of meaning as we've been talking about earlier. And, um, it can help us perform better on a whole array of professional and academic tasks. So do, do, do two things for me, because I know, and we don't want to give away too much of the book, because we yeah. really do want people to buy this book. Uh, but you actually launched a global survey. Yeah. And it, it reminded me of something, you know, our first conversation was back in 2013 on your book, To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth About Moving Others. And you almost, you know, sort of reframe the idea of salesmanship and what selling is. Uh, and you did that with a survey. You, yeah. you, you asked people how much, many people, yeah. how much time do you spend trying to move others to convince them right. to give something in exchange for what you've got? What have you learned? You, you did this global survey of regrets. What did you learn from the global survey? Well, we, we so among the things that we did was well, we collected over 16,000, close to 17,000 regrets now from people in 105 countries. It's, it's extraordinary. Just an, We have this incredible database of regrets from around the world. And what it tells us is that to understand regret, we have to look deeper. Um, traditional research had looked at regrets as in the domains of life. So this is an education regret, and this is a career regret, and this is a romance regret. And what I found is that deep down there, there's a, deep, there's a deeper structure to regret, that around the world, people regret the same four things. And what's interesting about these four core regrets is that they operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That is, if we understand what people regret the most, we understand what they value the most. And so this emotion of regret actually ends up being a pathway to understanding what makes life worth living. I love that image, a photographic negative of the good life. Do you want to give away the four regrets or one of them? Sure. Well, I'll give you I'll, I'll tell you one of them because it comes out it comes out very strongly. And 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 it's one of the things that at the end of the year, I think people can can really can really focus on. And and I also did another piece of, of research where I did a, a quantitative survey, uh, basically a giant opinion poll of four thousand four hundred eighty nine Americans asking some other questions about regret. And one of the things that comes out in that quantitative survey um, is that people overwhelmingly regret what they didn't do much more than what they did, that regrets of inaction dramatically outnumber regrets of action. And one of the four core regrets is what I call boldness regrets. Uh, people regret not being bold. And what's key here is that it doesn't matter the domain of life that they're in. Um, so, so I have literally hundreds of people in that qualitative database Say, regretting like not asking somebody out on a date years ago, not pursuing a romantic interest 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But I also have huge numbers of people who regret not starting a business. I have huge numbers of people who regret not speaking up. Um, that was a surprise. That was surprising to me. Huge numbers of people, even using that phrase, I wish I had spoken up. I wish I had asserted myself. 
And so what you see here is what I think is this is revealing is this need that we have to do something, you know, to 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 uh, sort of like the historical thing to like pursue something significant to 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 take a chance. And when while I have people in, you know, among these almost 17,000 who regretted say, oh, I started a business and it was a total disaster and I wish I hadn't done that. I do. There are people there are people like that. No, no question. But for every one of those, I probably have 20 who regret not doing that. And so I think one of the lessons as we get to the end of the year is if you reflect on your life and say, you know, was I bold enough? Did I take that chance? Um, and you didn't. That's a very common regret. But you have to use that as a guidance for next year and actually just go out and take that chance. And if you use that that thinking style that we were talking about before, where you go out a year from now and reflect back, what I think the evidence shows overwhelmingly is that a year from now, you're less likely to regret taking a chance and you're really likely to regret not taking a chance. So the the, the takeaway is take the chance. Whether it's in your romantic life, whether it's in your business life, whether it's simply in your community speaking up, take the chance. You know, that's it. Um, now my, my brain goes immediately to, okay, what chances should I take? Which should I choose? There are so many opportunities to be bold. Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, yes and no. Um, I mean, I think you have to think about, you know, wh- where in your where in your life boldness is is called for. I don't think boldness is called for in every in every domain of, of your life. So if you, you know, so if there is I, I'm 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 really surprised by the amount of regrets dealing with um uh, love and uh, not taking chances in love and romance. So if there's someone who you like, someone who you're attracted to, ask him or her out. Um, people, you're not going to, if you get rejected, it's not going to feel good, but that, that momentary pain is going to be less severe than the lingering pain of, of um, you're thinking about it for 30 years. And believe me, I've got people who are thinking about these missed romantic opportunities Literally forty years later, um, and, and again, you know, if you want to, if you want to, if you if you're thinking about, hey, maybe I should not be stuck in this lackluster job and try something more 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 risky, you know, I would say take the sense. I would say take the sensible risk because a year from now, even if it doesn't work out, you might you're you're, you're less likely to regret taking a chance and failing than you are um, not taking a chance. And this is not some kind of like. This is not kind of my own kind of philosophy or exhortation. This is what 16,000 people around the world are telling me. 16,000 people around the world are telling you this, by the way, from a wide variety of backgrounds. How did you find these people? Well, you know, again, the the, the qualitative survey, this the collection is we, it's not a ran, it's not a random sample. So it just I, I invited people to sub, I invited people to 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 submit regrets, and so there's a there's a there's an inherent bias. For instance, there's an inherent bias toward English. So most of the people who submitted were were English speakers. We have the site available in Chinese. We have the available in Spanish. We had some submissions in French and in Portuguese. But, you know, I'm, you know, I'm missing big parts of the world in that regard. It's um, interesting because because this I, I'm just thinking this book, which will have some web presence, should really be to use the wave metaphor of wave maker. I mean, this should be a living, breathing thing because 
sometimes when people share their regrets and you see others who are struggling with these regrets and they sort of define them for you, you're more willing to volunteer your own and to think about it. That is a hugely important point, hugely important point. And again, it's one of these things where for me as a writer, as just someone sort of understanding the world, if you're going to make a claim, if you're going to sort of say you understand something, the likely response is, how do you know? Okay, like, how do you know these things? And what's interesting with the regret is that when I look at the science, this 40 years of science, and when I look at what 16,000 people around the world and 4,000 plus people in the United States are, are telling me, they, they really converge. I, that, it, it's like it's like I, I feel more certain in the knowledge because the the hard headed analytic academic research and the the stories of people are basically saying the same thing. And what you're saying is extraordinarily important. One of the things that we know about reckoning with regret is that disclosing it is itself useful. And we often don't realize that there's some really, really interesting research showing that showing that um, our, our fears about disclosure, uh, self-disclosure, particularly of things that are negative. So if I disclose that I wasn't kind to somebody, or if I disclose that I bullied some kid in school, we have a lot of bullying regrets. If I disclose that I cheated a business partner or, or you know, those kinds of things, um, we tend to, you know, or if I disclose that I had an extramarital affair, if I disclose that I was too much of a wimp to speak up, or I disclose that I've always wanted to start a business, but I never got off my butt to do it. When we, that, that, we, we feel bad about ourselves in that. And so we don't want to disclose because we think that by disclosing, people will think less of it. And, and what, the, what the research shows is that when we disclose our vulnerabilities, people like us more not less. That's the extraordinary thing. And there's also research showing, as I said before, that the act of disclosure is itself at least somewhat therapeutic. Um, so that you, even to the point where, so James Pennebaker at, at the University of Texas has great research showing that if you simply write about this stuff for 15 minutes a day for yourself, that itself is helpful. So this idea, this idea that, 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 I mean, your your metaphor of waves is important here because what happens is that if I dis, if if somebody discloses, they lift a little bit of the burden, but by sharing with others, they signal to others that they can do the same thing, and so you have this, you know, your metaphor of waves. Yeah, and we as fellow parents, we've seen this. I'm sure you've seen it in parent communities. How's everything going? Perfect. <laughs> the kids are perfect. Right. The yeah. family is perfect. And then when you meet those families who are willing to expose a little bit more, exactly. that's where the relationships become deeper. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And and again, we have this. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, uh, you, you know, sociologists have been talking about this for 70 years in this qualitative way. Irving Goffman, the great sociologist, wrote a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And we know from sociology that at some level we are all role playing in everything that we do. That's part of the human condition. On the other hand, taking off that mask, sort of shedding the wardrobe of the performer is in some ways for the individual liberating 
And for the people on the outside, like actually really interesting and compelling in a way that the performance is not. So, so let me ask you, how did you get obsessed with this and take the bold step? I mean, it is a bold step of sitting there at your desk and saying, I, I am going to expansively look at this question. Did I lose you there? <laughs> yeah, well, no, no, no. I'm Are glad. you exhausted? I, I appreciate, I appreciate, I know, I appreciate your, <laughs> I do, honestly, I honestly, I appreciate your recognizing the grind it was to read through 16,000 regrets. Well, not uh, even read through. I'm, I'm yeah. even thinking of something else. I'm thinking, what triggered, what sparked the idea that you, Daniel Pink, your next big subject has to be regret and then how do you not get overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of having to address it in a substantive, meaningful, original way? Well, I mean, I got into it. It's interesting. It's another interesting question. And, you know, I mean, you and I are somewhat, you know, somewhat similarly situated. I would not have written this book in my 30s. Uh, I don't think that I had the, the mileage or the – I don't think I had the mileage on me um, – I don't think that I had the perspective. Uh, and in some ways, writing this felt inevitable in my 50s because I'm at that point in my life where I look back and there's some distance there for once, not in the way there wasn't when I was in my 30s. But, knock wood, I look forward and there's some distance in that direction too. And so I think that being, for me, being at that point in my life was one of the things that sort of made me open to this idea. And then the other thing that, that I mean, sort of the, the, the specific, I don't want to say trigger, but the specific spark was my elder daughter's college graduation a couple of years ago where I was sitting at this graduation. It's, you know, it was a big school, so it's like really long and there's all the, you know, and her last name starts with P, so there's a lot of waiting. And, um, and, and I was just thinking about, my own college experience. And I had this weird thing where it's like, I, I can't believe this kid is 22 now because it seems like she was born yesterday. But then the other thing is like, I can't believe I have a kid who's 22 because I'm only 27. Like I just graduated from college a couple of years ago. And so I have this like sort of weird. And then I started thinking about like, well, what was my college like? And I, and I realized that I had a lot of regrets. I had regrets about not being kind enough to people. I had regrets about not taking enough chances. Uh, I had regrets about my um, kind of diligence. And um, and to exactly to your point, when I came back, I just happened to mention it to a few people. And what I found is that it was a subject in which people leaned in. They didn't recoil from it in the way that the no regrets philosophy suggests. They instead, oh, that's so interesting because I, and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. I'm getting a kind of I mean, you're an interviewer. You you, you 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 have a sense when people are, you know, you know, um, uh, on your wavelength or really resonating yes. with what you're doing. And I just got a sense, like, wow, wait a second. There's a kind of deeper electric response to this that I'm not seeing in other things. And and I started thinking about what do we know about regret? And I started doing looking at some of the research, and I found it pretty interesting because again, it debunked this absurd idea of no regrets. You know, it's so interesting. It didn't come through a personal crisis. And this is the no. whole thing of creativity research. It's like you were just, it wasn't expected. You weren't searching for an idea. It came to you. It was an honest feeling and you latched onto it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, 
you, you know, I mean, it, what I do as a writer is at some level, like really undramatic, like, like, we, well, like, like what we, what we, what we tend to think about, we, we like, I've never had an epiphany. I've never bolted upright in bed and said, Oh my gosh, it's different. That's not how, it, I don't think that's how it works. It's more. And it's so interesting. You do not regret. I can hear it. You, Daniel Pink, do not regret ever having experienced an epiphany because epiphany doesn't represent boldness. The boldness is taking an insight and taking it to where you went. You mentioned, I have one more question about yeah. regrets. And then I just have a final question because I want to yeah. circle back to that first book we spoke about of yours, which still I live with in my <laughs> brain and it impacts me. But uh, you said something earlier that the research shows we human beings are programmed for yeah. regret. What yeah. does that mean? And wh where did well, that come well, it's this is what some of the research says. It's that is that our that our that our that our cognitive machinery is programmed for regret because here's the thing, regret is functional. Okay, like 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 it does something for us. And so imagine if we were unable to experience regret. So I was um, uh, uh, one one of the regrets that people have is that they what I call foundation regrets. They regret not saving money. They regret not working hard enough in school. They regret not taking care of their bodies. But imagine if I was incapable of experiencing that. I would say, oh, man, um, no, I have no regrets about never exercising. And, you know, then I get to the then I get to the point where I'm in my 50s and it's like, you know, I'm you know, I'm massively overweight and unhealthy. So but if I have the capacity to feel regret about that, I that that spear of regret makes me say, oh, wait a second, there's something gone wrong here. Is there, instead of denying that or wallowing in it, can I extract a lesson from it? And, and that's, why, that's why it's functional. This is why, I mean, it's, it's very interesting in the research. This is why people with neurodegenerative diseases, um, uh, things, some Parkinson's uh, sufferers, some Huntington sufferers, uh, certain kinds of brain lesions, they can't experience regret, that the inability to experience regret is a sign of, of, of a grave disorder. And it's because like we need to be able to experience regret to learn and improve and do better. Human beings who can't experience regret aren't gonna make it very very far. So now let me just come full circle back to, to that original book, To Sell is Human, The Surprising Truth of Moving Others. And I mean, there's so much material in there that actually, I almost want to ask an open-ended question because you know your work clearly there's over there are overlapping themes and 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 marriages of of ideas that you can have. But you know you mentioned this idea when people hear well you you said when when you're an interviewer and you know if you're on the same wavelength you talked about the importance in salesmanship of listening, mm. really being attuned to the other person. But more broadly speaking, I'm just thinking of that book, like if there is one other takeaway we can get for the upcoming new year, we all want to be more effective, even than we are in moving other people, sure. whether it's towards an idea or right. towards a sale of a product or whatever it is. So give us a couple of New Year's tips from your Absolutely. earlier work. Totally, totally. So there's some really good. I mean, there's some really, really interesting stuff in in that body of uh, in that body of research. So one of the things that has 
I'll give you, I mean, I, I got all kinds of ones. So, so one of the things that has um, uh, helped me a lot is that if you want to change someone's behavior, you really need to focus on making it easy for them to act. That is, we sometimes spend too little time making it easy for people to act and too much time trying to change their mind. Uh, people don't like trying to change their mind, but if you just make it easy for them to act, you make it easy for them to do something, they don't have to change their mind. There's all kinds of evidence on this in raising money for charity. It's all kind of, so, so for instance, let's even something very small. Um, I'll give you an example. Like I was thinking about this the other day. I went to CVS, right? And, and, and they gave me the option of rounding up my donation in order to give to a chair, R rounding up my total. So it's like $34.13. You want to round it up to $35 and we'll give that 87 cent difference to a particular charity. They said, they asked me the question. All I had to do was click yes. If they had said, Dan, would you like to support this blah, blah, blah charity at some, it's like, well, I don't, you know, but again, like I'm donating to this charity because they made it so easy for me to, they made it easy for me to do that. So make it easy for people to do what you want them to do. Really focus on that off ramp. Um, human beings sometimes resist changing their mind, but they, they don't, re they, they're less likely to resist. Um, they're less likely to resist just making it easy for somebody to do something. And there's one other thing that, that you said, which I think is, is so empowering this, this idea of, is, did you call it motivational interviewing? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, Ir Irving Allen probably uses that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting one. It's like it's 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 uh, it's a, it's because a, it's, it's a therapeutic technique. And essentially what it is, is, is this let's uh, you have to deploy it carefully. So let's say that you want let's say somebody is really resisting doing something. Let's let's take an uncontroversial topic. Vaccines. All right. Um, and uh, and you have a, an uncle who doesn't want to get a, a, a vaccine. And so you could so you could like try to. So, so one thing that you could do is, is try to make it easy for the uncle to do that. Hey, uncle, I'm going over. I'm, I'm making an appointment for myself to get this done. Do you want me to do it for you? And, you know, and then I'm actually driving there. My, uh, I'm driving to the, to, to the site myself and I'm happy to make the appointment for you and, do, you know, get that kind of thing. Rather than saying, you idiot, why aren't you getting a vaccine? Everybody knows vaccines, you know, so just make it easy for them. But the other thing on motivational interviewing is this. You can say to Uncle Harry, hey, Uncle Harry, um, yeah, I, know, I see you don't want to get a vaccine. About, you know, on a scale of zero to ten, on a scale of one to ten, how ready are you to get a vaccine? And Harry might say, I'm a two. And now when we hear that, our instinct is to say, Harry, you fool, you gotta get a vaccine. Instead of saying, berating him for being a two on a scale of one to 10, he said, well, Uncle Harry, well, why didn't you pick a lower number? And he says, well, you know, I've heard some things about it might be useful and, and I'm 71 years old and I heard that, and so he starts articulating his own reasons for doing something. And this is also really axiomatic in persuasion, is that you want to surface people's own reasons for doing something rather than have them take your reasons. This is a parenting 101. And so if you can make it easy for people to act and surface their own reasons for doing something, you're going to be a much, 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 much better persuader.
I mean, this this can apply to every issue that matters imaginable. And it also gets into your riff. And and you did some really great writing on this, the art of improv and how this fits in. And it's it's like it's 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 well, it's the obvious rule. Right. And not but yes. And but yet but it's the same framing. Yes. Yes. yes, The number two. And why and why not? Number one. Yes. Yes. And the other thing about it. It, it, going to the improv is that one of the rules of improv and it's and it's and it's central to successful improv actors is one of the central rules for, for I mean, I, I, I'm obsessed with the value of improv for persuasion, as you know, um, one of the rules, as you said, is to say yes. And um, so. So, again, exactly saying so you're too. Yes. And why aren't you, you know, um, the the other thing, the two other things. One is is uh, to hear offers, and so even Uncle Harry saying he's a two is a little bit of an offer. He's not saying he's a zero, so you have to hear a little bit of an offer there. The other one, which is important, you know, also in terms of giving people their own reason for doing something, and this is the, getting to this in a roundabout way, is that a central rule of improv is to make the other person look good make the other person look good. Improv is not about, hey, look at my funny thing. It's like you're trying to make other the other person look good. And and when everybody's trying to make each other look good, everybody looks good. And to make each uh, to make everybody look good and to work like that, people have to trust each other, yep. which is something we are currently struggling with in our society. Is your next book maybe <laughs> the, trust the- the incredible erosion of trust. I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, it's an interesting issue. I mean, you know, uh, about 20 years ago, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book, a big, thick book called Trust about how the, the really about the economy of trust and how our whole economic system hinges on trust. Um, I mean, you, you know, when I, t- when I take out you know, back in the days when we learned we use cash. If I t- if I took out a, you know, I have some. Do I have any cash in here? Um, <laughs> I know I, I have some. Okay, so let's take a look. So this is for, you know, I actually happen to have like some extra British currency. So when I take this out right here, there's a ten pound note, and but it's just a piece of paper. This is a joke. You know, and but we but we trust that it's actually worth something, and so trust is important. And trust is being corroded by uh, trust is being corroded by bad actors, by by misinformation, and um, when yeah, that's a hard problem. Well, thank you for agreeing to do your next book on trust. I hope. <laughs> you can- uh, listen, I I just want to say one phrase, and then I want to thank you because. You you used a phrase. It was one of the most beautiful phrases about age. You said you and I are similar, somewhat similarly situated. <laughs> I appreciate that because today is actually my birthday. I'm a little older than fifty. Happy birthday! Thank you. I just hit sixty-two. You know, people. All right. Well, why are you working on your birthday? This is such a joy to speak with you. So I, I really, really deeply appreciate it. And um, but you're honoring Studs Terkel because here's the thing: it, it's it's it, we're coming completely full circle, Michael. We talked at the top about how 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 work is a source for for daily meaning, and and here you are on your on your birthday making meaning. What finer tribute to your time on this planet? 
than to do something that you find meaningful. I mean, it's, it's inspiring. Thank you for putting words to that. I, I really, <laughs> I really do appreciate that. And Dan, uh, as always, really great, great pleasure. And I can't wait. I am going to buy a hard copy too, but I ordered the, uh, I ordered the version on my iPad. So it's going to pop up automatically on February. What? February 1, it comes out. So far, we seem to have eluded, eluded some of the supply chain problems, but I do have these visions of 100,000 hardcover books floating off the coast of Long Beach. So you can all, you know, if, if you reach, if you, if anybody hits that situation, you can download the digital version or download the audio version. Well, the power of regret, how looking backward moves us forward. Happy New Year, Dan Pink. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michael. If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, I hope you sign up for my Wavemaker newsletter on Substack. You'll find it at michaelshoulder.substack.com or on my website at wavemaker.me. Thanks for joining me. I hope you have a happy and healthy and regret-free New Year. <laughs>